we continue to talk about justification, which we began last week, and I won't attempt to retell the entire story of Hosea and Gomer, but just a little snippet, because I think sometimes we think of justification, and we think of forgiveness, and we think of God's grace, and we think, oh, that's New Testament stuff. But I think it was helpful to start in part one in the Old Testament, deep in a minor prophet there, to see that the heart of God has always been a heart that has been after reuniting with us, bringing us back together with, with, with him, loving us. And so the story last week, just a brief summary of it, God tells us this rather obscure prophet, uh, he says, I want you, lived in Samaria, kind of the worst, most decadent part uh, of ancient Israel. He said, I want you to go and get married. And the guy's thinking, okay, great. God has a special girl picked out for me. And God is like, by the way, she's a call girl. By the way, she's a prostitute. So go woo her, love her, uh, charm her, and get her to marry you. And her name is Gomer. I'm sorry, but that, that's her name. I'm sure it was very cute back in ancient Israel. Um, it's a little weird today. But he goes and he, he does. He charms her. He woos her. And, and they become husband and wife. Does not take long before, before his young bride returns to her old ways. Uh, many a night go by, and, and Hosea is not sure where she is, but she's not in his bed. She becomes pregnant, as you might suspect already, um, but given the names, it's confirmed. The babies do not belong to Hosea. They are um, fathered by another man, sired by another man. And God says, Hosea, I want you to keep loving her. I want you to remain faithful to her, even though she has not remained faithful to you. He does. Finally, Gomer's had enough. Um, whether it's can't handle the fishbowl of being married to a preacher, or, or I don't share his values, I don't share his passion, I don't share his, his religious convictions. Um, so she moves out. Um, she moves out. And there he is with three kids, um, raising these children as if they were his own. And she's gone. And God says, I still want you to love her. Um, she's, she's basically starving to death out there because she's gone through so many men. And, and she doesn't look like she used to look. And, and so she's with this real loser now that can't even provide for her. So Hosea finds ways to get food and oil and wine to his wife, who has long since abandoned him. And then finally, the climax of the story I shared with you last week in the book of Hosea is she is finally taken by the man that she shacked up with, taken to the slave market. He figures he can at least get a few dollars with her um, before her health is totally gone. Um, she could at least be like a domestic servant somewhere. So he takes her to the slave market, and this man who is not her husband takes her down there and is going to sell her. And the climax of the story is Hosea kind of elbowing his way through the crowd, and he is going to bid to buy back his wife. And he is able to purchase her back. And the Scripture tells us his dream is not that she will now uh, call him master. His dream is that she will one day call him husband, that she will one day discover how deeply he loves her and has loved her all along. The parallel, of course, I think that, that begs to be made from this story is God coming to buy us back from slavery to sin. All of our wickedness, all of our betrayal, we are that woman in that story who have been unfaithful to God. 
And yet God has always pursued, has always chased after us with his love, climaxing in the cross on Calvary when he pays a price far greater than gold and silver to buy us back. All right, so that was the story of Hosea and Gomer, the introduction to justification, God making us right through the price of Jesus Christ. Now, where I begin this week is with a simple statement. I'm not a good person. In fact, I am, I'm an awful person. I'm a horrible person. Now, you may be saying, hang on a second. Um, you know, you're not that great, okay? But you don't, you don't need to go all that way, you know? You're better than that. The problem is, the good friend of mine that tells me an awful person is Jesus. Jesus. Now, you may be thinking, hang on a second. Jesus loves us. Jesus would never say something like that. Have you read the Sermon on the Mount? Have you read the Sermon on the Mount? Because I read those words of my friend Jesus Christ, and I cannot escape from the reality that I am bad. Jesus shows up and he takes the Old Testament law of Moses and he goes to the next level. He says, you have heard, you know, that if you kill somebody, it's murder. You're a murderer. It's wrong to do that. You've heard that. And everybody's like, of course I've heard that. Jesus says, I tell you, if you have ever had hatred in your heart for your brother, you're a murderer. Well, okay, I'm a murderer. (laughs) Jesus goes on, and example after example he uses, and he raises the bar. One of them, of course, he says, if you have looked upon another woman who's not your wife and lusted after her, you are an adulterer. You guys remember this stuff. You know this sermon. So I'm left, based on the words of my good friend Jesus Christ and my Savior, I'm a murderer, I'm an adulterer, and the rest of of the Sermon on the Mount doesn't make me feel much better about myself, especially when he says something like, you go and be perfect just as your Father is perfect. You see, people were expecting, okay, Messiah is coming. Messiah is coming, and the law of Moses has been such a heavy, heavy burden on our back. Who could possibly keep the law of Moses? Surely he's going to lighten up a little bit. Surely he's going to tell us, well, you don't really need to keep all of it. Jesus shows up and he says, not only do you have to keep all of it, you need to go beyond it to the heart. Can't hate can't lust. And so Jesus leaves me with the distinct impression that I am a bad person after I read his sermon. Now, if I wasn't convinced of that after reading the Sermon on the Mount and other teachings of Jesus, then he makes the point emphatically on the cross. After all, the central message of the cross is this is what it took to save you. You were so depraved, you were so far gone, you were so bad to redeem you. It wasn't just a little touch-up paint. It was the Son of God hanging on the cross. That is how much distance, Gordon, there is between God's holiness His purity, His perfection, His goodness, His kindness, His love, all of that that is God and you. The only way to span that distance was through the cross. 
And so, yeah, I get the message loud and clear from Jesus that I am not a a good person. Um, Now, here's the kicker, I think. Here's the kicker. Jesus says, not only are you a worse person than you ever thought you were, but God loves you more than you ever thought he could. Now, the response, and I'm positive, original hearers of Jesus must have gone to this place. It's like, whoa, hang on a second. I'm worse than I ever thought I could be. God loves me more than I ever knew. Which is it? Either God loves me or I'm a really bad person. Those both can't be true at the same time. But Jesus never relents. Jesus never gives an inch on this. He is constantly teaching the pattern and the holiness of God and the heart of God and the purity of God and the goodness of God. And he's constantly teaching, by the way, God loves you like crazy. So where do I bring these together? Well, the biblical word where where these where the crossroads of my ugliness and God's love meet, the biblical word is justified or justification, right? Justification simply means to be made just, to be made right. Um, It is on trial. It is a judge acquitting a defendant. You are not guilty. It's even more than that in the New Testament context. It is not only am I declared not guilty through the blood of Jesus Christ, but the very righteousness, the very goodness of Jesus himself is credited to me. It becomes as if I'm righteous, as if I'm perfect, because everything that Jesus lived out is credited to me, that, that's good. That's, that's good. And that's the biblical doctrine of justification. There are a lot of places in the New Testament you could go to study this doctrine. I think one of the, the best and clearest um, chunks of Scripture is, is Romans chapter 5. Right? Romans chapter 5. And Paul is going to start right out. I, I love it when Paul does this, and he does it quite often. He likes to start with his conclusion. Say, look, I want everyone to know... Here's where I'm going. So he starts in chapter 5, verse 1, by telling us, Therefore, we have been justified through what? Through faith. We've been justified through faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Like I said, you're going to see echoes of this all over Scripture. We don't have peace with God through our ability to get everything right. We don't have peace with God through our ability to fulfill the law of Moses. We don't have uh, an ability to have peace with God through trying a little bit harder. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ. We are made perfect through him. We are acquitted through him. We are justified through him and only through him and only through what Jesus has accomplished not through what we have accomplished. Now let's jump in at verse 6 and begin reading. Romans 5, 6, and we'll read on to verse 11. Paul says, you see, at just the right time, 
When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. That's a good phrase to kind of hang on to as we work this morning. Christ died for who? Christ died for us. He died for the ungodly. Very rarely, imagine he's thinking of human history and great stories and legends. Um, He says, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But, in contrast, God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. little footnote here. Yes, you heard correctly. Paul is saying that we are not good, we are not righteous, and still, because of God's love, Jesus died for us. Verse 9. Since we now have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? So this text here at the beginning kind of of Romans chapter 5 is Paul essentially giving us a spiritual status report. Paul is holding up a big full-length mirror that allows us to see spiritual reality. Paul invites us to look in that mirror, and what we see in that mirror isn't all that pretty, right? Um, What we see in that mirror is the way we really are on a spiritual level, and it is not all that attractive. So here, here is Paul's status report. It's essentially, I am a sinner. I deserve the wrath of God. I have no possible way to save myself, right? I'm a sinner, I deserve God's wrath, I have no possible way to save myself. Um, he uses several phrases. You can write this down, it's in your outline this morning. Um, first thing he says is that I am powerless. I am powerless, verse 6. He says, verse 6 also, I am ungodly. I'm not like God. God is God, I am ungod. I am ungodlike, I am ungodly. He says, verse 8, I am a sinner. And then verse 9, he says, I am actually God's enemy, right? That's who I am before Jesus. That's who I am without faith in Jesus. That's who I am left to my own devices. Okay, I'm powerless. I mean, I kind of, kind of hesitate at that a little bit, Paul. Powerless, really? I mean, I do some good things, right? I occasionally help somebody out. I occasionally forgive somebody. I mean, there are some good things that I do. Surely those count for something. Surely somewhere on my, on my spiritual resume, there is something good that God can, can count. But Romans 5, 6 says no. Romans 5, 6 says I am powerless when it comes to my salvation. In other words, I bring nothing to the negotiations, you know. It's like showing up at the car dealership. I want to buy this car. Well, let's start the negotiations. What do you have to offer? Nothing. I'd like to be saved. 
I would like to spend eternity with you, God. Okay, what do you have to offer? Nothing. I'm powerless. Right? And then there's this Texas-size double-barrel shotgun here. Paul says, hey, Gordon, you're ungodly and you're a sinner. Okay? Um, I, I would rather not think of myself that way, Paul. I would rather think of myself as basically a good person. I make some mistakes, okay? I sin occasionally. Basically a good person, though, Paul. I'd rather not say ungodly and sinner about myself because after all, I mean, I'm basically a good person and, and I can kind of take myself so far and God's grace, um, you know, he just kind of kicks in a little grace at the end to kind of make up the difference, right? Paul says, um, yeah, not exactly. Not exactly. Um, actually, you're ungodly. You are a sinner. That's defini definitionally at your core who you are. You are not basically a good person who is able to make it most of the way to, toward righteousness. If this was a marathon of righteousness, Paul says, you haven't gotten out of the starting blocks, right? Nor will you. Because here, here's how we like to think, and, and, and you could probably identify with this. We like to think, yeah, basically a good person. You're basically a good person. I mean, and when we think like that, we like to compare ourselves to people who really aren't. I mean, I know, let's, let's just grab a name out of here. How about Adolf Hitler, right? I know he wasn't a good person. So compared to that guy, I come off looking pretty good, right? I come off looking pretty good. But the New Testament, starting with like the Sermon on the Mount, it says you can't do that. The only standard that I can use for goodness is God himself, right? That's the standard, not Adolf, okay? So when it comes to righteousness or unrighteousness, um, if there was this like continuum between God and Adolf, I'm down here nuzzled up with Adolf because there's only one in the righteous category. That's God. I'm in the unrighteous category, and so are you. Verse 9 comes along. And if there is anything else holding up my view of myself as basically a good and righteous person, Paul kicks the legs out from under it when he says in verse 9, you are, in fact, God's enemy. Enemy? I, mean, I never declared war against God. I, I, Paul, I don't see myself that way at all. But the truth is, God's nature is holiness, so when I lie, cheat, steal, lust, hate, have prejudices, when I am like that, every time I do that, it is an attack against the nature of God. It is rebellion against the creator of the universe. It is setting myself up as an enemy. It's telling God, look, you may say this is the way to do it. I know better. And I'm going to do it my way. So Paul says, you're not only a sinner and ungodly, you're an enemy of God. Now, you know what's coming. I know what's coming. We're going to get to talk about grace. We're going to get to talk about the cross. It's going to be really great. But I don't want to jump there just yet. Because I think that's part of the problem. We jump there. We want to jump there. We know it's coming. We've read the whole story. We get the good news. But I believe it is incredibly important that you and I own this truth 
first. I think we have problems when we don't fully own our unrighteousness, when we don't fully embrace who Scripture says that we are. And so it's important that we understand that we, who we are without God's intervention. It's important that, that we come, that we just let it soak in lest we carry any pride in our own spirituality, lest we carry any idea that we have something of worth to bring to the negotiation, we just need to let what Scripture says about us sink in. We need to look in that mirror as hard as it is, and we need to allow that to to become true for us. Obviously, that's going to change in Jesus Christ. But I think what drives us to the cross, what drives us to to a thirst to, to, to know God is an understanding of who we are without the cross. Now, we may have different sins. We may have different sin struggles, different addictions. We may have different personal histories. But in the end, without Jesus, both you and I are rowing the same, the same boat that, that Hitler is on. Okay? We're in the same boat. And once we own that truth, fully own that truth, then we are ready to come to terms with the good news. And then the good news really sounds like good news, right? Really sounds like good news. So here's the status change. Second main point on your outline this morning in in Romans 5, the status change. The history of sin, you know, since Adam, the history of sin has been forever interrupted by his story of giving up his life on the cross to reconcile people with God. The history of sin has been forever interrupted by his story of giving up his life on the cross to reconcile people to God. Let me, let me just give you a little story that I think helps kind of show how this status change looks. Maybe it'll help you, maybe it won't. But I have these friends, the Reynolds family, um, and they decided at one point to, to take a dog into their house. Now, we lived together in Rio, Brazil for 10 years, and a, a woman that worked in their house for a while, she said, look, I know you guys have been looking for a dog. There is this dog that I've seen. He lives on the streets in my favela, in my, in my slum. He lives on the streets. Um, maybe you guys would like to take him in, right? Let me tell you about this dog. This is a typical Rio street dog. This is not Pets Are Us, okay? This is not, wow, how cute. This is a mangy, stinky, dirty, sick, incredibly thin and malnourished animal that perhaps gets a little testy um, because he hasn't had regular access to food and water or, or affection, all right? So they say yes. They take socks into their house. He is a funny-looking guy. He is. But he quickly becomes the sweetest dog anybody knows. I mean, he's just a sweetheart. So they take Socks in. Now, eventually, the Reynolds family decide they're going to move back to the United States. They live in Frisco now. And so they they pay Continental Airlines the doggy fee for Socks to have a ticket and fly back with them um, and get all of his shots and everything that you need 
to make it legal to bring a dog back into this country. And I love what Aurea, she was our church secretary, still is in Rio. I love what she said. She was so amazed at them to, out of all of the dogs they could have taken into their house, that they chose this one. She used to say, after the Reynolds had moved back to the States with this dog, she used to say, that is the luckiest dog on planet Earth. And I tell that story because old socks and us, we have a little bit in common, right? It is not that God took us into his home. It is not that God made us the objects of his love, his tender affection, because of how absolutely adorable we were. Or because we had had all of our shots and we were healthy and we were desirable. That's not why. He chose you to be the object of his love because he created you. He created you to live in fellowship with him. And no matter how far away you get from the father's house, he still, and this blows our human rationality and intellect away, we don't understand this. He still longs to have us back home with him. And so we're ready to talk about this story of the cross. Paul says in verse 11 that in Christ I am reconciled to God. God does the reconciling. He and I were enemies. Now we are in peace. Now we are together in the same family. He's given me his family name, and he has pulled me into his home. He's reconciled us. I am loved, verse 8. In Christ, I am loved. And if you remember the story of Hosea and Gomer being a parallel to this story, it is a love like no other. And then he says, In Christ, I am saved from God's wrath. I am saved from God's wrath. So by God's great love, my sin problem has been resolved through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. As verse 8 says, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is so important that the two symbols, the two rites, the two Christian practices that have existed for 2,000 years that are practiced by Christian churches all over the world, baptism and the Lord's Supper, both of those symbols point to the cross. It was so important that God wanted us to be reminded over and over and over about what he did to bring us back together, about how much he loves us, about how safe we are in his arms. So the freedom that comes through being reconciled with God, through receiving the Holy Spirit to dwell in my life, this freedom opens us to become a new sort of people. We're going to talk about this next week as we talk about sanctification. But it opens the door for us to be new sorts of people, releases us from the prison of being enemies of God, places you and I in his family, this is where new life begins. 
when I accept the work that Jesus accomplished for me on the cross, that is where new life begins. There is, throughout the New Testament, there is a powerful marker of this status change from enemy of God, from ungodly, from, from, from powerless, to being God's treasured child. Right? The marker is, is baptism. This is the third main point on your outline this morning, status symbol. This also comes from this whole argument in, in, in Romans 5 and spilling into Romans 6. The status symbol, the way I demonstrate my faith in the gospel is to reenact it, to reenact it through baptism into Jesus. Paul writes a lot about the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, just in case you know, there's any confusion about what exactly the gospel is, here it is. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, the gospel is the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, right? This is the gospel. Because of your sins and to restore your relationship to God, Jesus was killed on the cross, his body was buried, he was raised on the third day. That is the gospel. And then as we move through Romans 5, and then he begins Romans chapter 6, he says, let me remind you guys, let me remind you that you have reenacted the gospel. You have made that story your story. You have, you have put it on like clothing. You are wearing the gospel. And the symbol of that, the marker of that is Christian baptism. Paul says these words in Romans 6. He says, don't you know that uh, all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that Jesus, uh, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might live a new life. Right, baptism isn't like something that you accomplish. It's not really something that you do. That's not a good way of looking at it. Baptism is accepting what Jesus accomplished for you. It is you wearing it. It is you saying yes to this amazing love story of God. It is where you are buried with Jesus. You are raised to this new sort of life with Jesus. Now, preachers, um, we love to end sermons like this by giving people an opportunity to respond to the gospel, to give people an opportunity to express their, their faith and experience salvation. In a lot of churches, you're going to end a sermon like this by saying, anyone who wants to accept Jesus, raise your hand. Or maybe anyone who wants to accept Jesus, why don't you say this prayer with me? And then you're going to be wearing the gospel. And I think having people raise their hands and say, I love Jesus, that's a nice thing. I certainly think having people pray and confess their sinfulness before Jesus is a nice thing. But neither one of those are particularly biblical, okay? Right? Not particularly biblical. I mean, um, what I do with my friends, um, and I have a lot of friends, you know, we talk about, well, what, you know, what is this about accepting Jesus, and at what point is somebody saved or unsaved? And I don't really love those questions about, is this essential, that essential? I think if the Bible teaches something, you just do it. I mean, God is the one who decides who's saved and who's not saved. Now, the deal is, if you were to sit down and say, hey, why don't we do this? 
All right? Why don't we go through all of the New Testament and you write down in this column all of the examples where like Jesus or Peter or Paul preached a sermon and then said at the end, now if you want to accept the Lord, raise your hand. Okay, you write down all of those scriptures and then on this other side, let's write down all of the scriptures that talk about baptism. You know where I'm going, don't you? Nobody was raising their hand in the New Testament. It doesn't mean it was a bad thing. Right? That mean it was it was wrong. It just isn't the biblical way that you say yes to God. I don't know if that makes sense. I don't know if that has to make sense to us. But it wasn't a sinner's prayer. It wasn't raising a hand. It was it was doing what God set up for you to do to experience what the cross accomplished for you. It is you being buried into Jesus. It is you being raised with Jesus in this beautiful reenactment of the gospel story. Um, now, some other places will say, yeah, I mean, we baptize people, but I know a lot of other places they'll say, but, but hey, if you, if you accept Jesus today, we will go ahead and set up your baptism for like August, you know? We have a special day, and you can invite your friends and print up invitations, and hey, special days are great. Inviting your friends and family is great. Again, not what you find in the Bible, though. Right? In the Bible, you've got people saying, I want to say yes to Jesus, whether it's in Corinth, whether it's, it's, it's the Philippian jailer. I mean, they say yes to Jesus, or they say to, to, to Philip, you know, they say, what do I need to do? Well, you need to reenact the story. You need to wear the story. Um, so you can do that, guess what, here, today. Have everything you need to do that. No need to wait on this. I like the way that uh, the message translates this passage from Romans. Listen to this. Um, Eugene Peterson translates it this way, Romans 6, 4 to 5. He says, when we were lowered into the water, it is like the burial of Jesus. When we are raised up out of the water, it's like the resurrection of Jesus. Each of us is raised into a light-filled world by our Father so that we can see where we're going in our new grace grace sovereign country. Yes. I like that. I like that. G.K. Chesterton, who had been uh, a famous British outspoken atheist and then ended up accepting Jesus and, and coming to faith in Christ, um, he, one time he was, he was getting ready to cross a street and this reporter caught him and this reporter wanted to ask him something about this, this conversion that occurred. And he said, Mr. Chesterton, what would you do if Jesus Christ were standing behind you at this very moment? Now, without pausing, Chesterton looked him in the eyes and said, He is. He is. I believe that Jesus is present. Not just present in this room because it's a church service. I believe he is constantly present. He is constantly inviting us to walk in fellowship with Him and to enjoy what He so painfully and sacrificially purchased for us 